I think uh, one of my favorite jokes that relates to, to teaching is uh, a couple of young fish are swimming by, and uh, an older older fish swim, swims by the two younger fish and says, "Hey, boys, how this is the water?" and keeps on swimming. The two younger fish look at one another, and one says to the other, "What on earth is water?" Um, today we're we're going to be talking about redemption. We're going to be talking about the salvation uh, that God brings. But one of the things we have to ask when we use that language is, "What are we being saved from?" Uh, I think there is a certain tendency. Um, in our evangelistic efforts to use certain things that worked in the past. Uh, There's certain things like uh, the Romans Road or uh, the Navigator's methodology that people uh, use pretty frequently in evangelism and that were really successful 30, 40, and and 50 years ago. Uh, You know, you have you uh, you on one side and there's a big chasm called sin and God on the other side. And they say, you know, how can you bridge this gap? And you put a cross in the middle and say that it's Christ. But one of the reasons why these evangelistic methodologies worked those years ago is there used to be a general biblical knowledge among the American populace. So in America, generally speaking, you could walk up to the uh, man on the streets, and and they might they would probably know who Moses and Joshua and Jesus and Peter and Paul were. And they kind of had the knowledge of the background story of the Bible. So when you began to say sin and Jesus and salvation, they were terms and ideas that they had a foundational story to support what you were talking about. What current uh, evangelists are saying and realizing is that now we have to give people the biblical narrative in order for them to understand the terms that we are using. So, and by the way, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this series. We want to remind believers who know the story about the story so that we can be better equipped to tell the story. Uh, oftentimes we, we jump into the, or throw people into the, the deep end, you know, saying things like, you must be justified by the redeeming blood of the Lamb, and they think, what on earth is this person talking about? Uh, we, we use Christianese to, to, uh, uh, ex- explain our faith, which is useful if you know all the terminology, and is very unhelpful if you don't know the terminology. And uh, last week we we talked about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, that he is fully God and fully man, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, the Expected One, who comes to save and deliver his people. Today we're going to be looking at his work. Uh, In particular, because we're flying through this series, we're going to be looking at especially uh, what does his death and resurrection accomplish. And we won't be comprehensive, but we hope to hit some highlights. As I said, in order to talk about salvation, we have to talk about uh, what are we saved from. 
and the, the conditions, the problems that man has. We talked about some in the fall, but it's kind of necessary uh, to, to circle back now and, and, and mention a few. I'm just going to give three major problems that mankind has uh, and, uh, and that necessitate a savior or necessitate saving work to occur. Um, and for these, I'm not going to give verses I'm, uh, because, like I said, we dealt, dealt with that more uh, in the fall. Uh, we're going to hit some verses uh, as we move forward looking at um, the works of Christ. We're skipping it for time's sake, not because uh, it's unimportant. So the first major problem that mankind has is that it is condemned. That is, it is because of sin, mankind, both individually and, and as a group, is under the just condemnation of God. Uh, God uh, condemns their sin, and therefore they come under the punishment of God, which is the wrath of God poured out against sin. Um, by the way, one, sometimes people have a problem with it. They say, can't God just ignore uh, sin? By the way, I like that we sang, you know, holy, 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 reminding us that in God's holiness, he, he cannot accept sinful man. Uh, the, the holiness of God cannot be stained or, or blemished by evil. Another thing I'll, I'll remind us of is that it would be a wicked thing for a judge to not punish the wickedness of man. Part of the part of the purpose of a judge is to condemn that which is wicked and to see that it receives the right punishment. So God cannot be a just judge and overlook the wickedness that exists within mankind. He has looked upon our sin and he passes down the punishment which he promised ahead of time. The punishment for sin is death, both physical and spiritual. Uh, One of the things that it tells us in in the scriptures is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, In in Jesus is life. In Jesus is light. Uh, One of the things this condemnation of death brings is separation from God. Which brings us to our second C. The first major problem mankind has, it is, it is condemned under the just penalty for sin. Secondly, it is corrupted. Let me give you three C's. So first of all, humanity is condemned under the just punishment of God, resulting in His wrath. Secondly, humanity is corrupted in both its nature and actions. Uh, so, uh, a lot of times we tend to think about uh, sin as uh, the particular wrong thing I did. Oh, I lied. Well, I, I hurt. I intentionally hurt somebody. I did something malicious. Uh, but the, the 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 problem is deeper than that. You know, if you if if you have a calculator and you enter in a mathematical problem and it gives you the wrong result, you know, that's a problem. But the deeper problem is that you have a calculator producing wrong results. You know, part of the problem in us is that we are corrupted. That is, we not only just do evil things, that we have a part of us that produces a desire to do evil. And not only do we have a part of us that produces a desire to do evil, we have a part of us that chooses 
and our chooser picks evil to do. So we, we got we got problems from the from the headwaters to the final outworking in this problem. We have wicked desires being produced in us. There are times at which we decide to pursue those wicked things, and then we act out in evil. It's not just a problem of output. The problem is we in and of ourselves are corrupted. Uh, These actions, uh, again, bring problems with a holy God. Uh, we're, we're corrupted, uh, we, and, and therefore we can't get right with God. We're separated from Him. There, there's distance in Him. Uh, he cannot associate with the wicked and the lowly in their current state. Or wicked and sinful, rather. So we're condemned, we are corrupted in our nature, and we, we can't change that nature. We have very little influence over this part of us that keeps producing wicked desires, even though we want to stop, but we may want to stop. And there may be a part of us that even enjoys those wicked things. We're condemned, we're corrupted. Uh, thirdly, we are captive. Uh, one of the ways in the scripture describes sin as, as being enslaved to something. Uh, I was, um, I made fun of people at the lake, and now I'm going to have to confess to you that I, I actually went to the lake uh, late Friday after our boy, boys went to sleep. We loaded them up in a car, um, brought them out to Pickwick to a friend's house who offered it to a, a, us and another a family. And uh, uh, stayed there uh, for one night and then drove back late Saturday so I could be uh, here this Sunday. Uh, while we were there, outside our window, there were several spider webs. And you, you know one of the things that makes a spider web effective is that when a, a fly or a bug gets in it, the harder they try and get out, the more and more tangled they get. You realize that sin is like that as well if we're trying in our own fleshly and earthly power to get out of it. So we recognize the evil that sin is. We don't want to do it anymore. So what do we do? We try really hard to get better. And maybe we we do that for a while. And if we're successful, what begins to happen? We become prideful. We become self-righteous. We start thinking better of ourselves than we should. And of course, pride is a sin. So we begin to uh, condemn ourselves. By the way, that's a dangerous route to follow. That's the route of the Pharisees. The danger of those sins is you don't see them as sin. So one way when we try and fight against sin is it becomes even harder to detect. Another thing that may happen is you may be successful for a while and then guess what? You, you, you mess up. Things go sideways. Well, then what happens? You have all sorts of shame and guilt pouring down on you. And then uh, what you do as the result of the same shame and guilt, you say, oh, I'm, I'm worthless anyways, so I might as well go on, on, keep on doing evil. And you end up in a worse state than you did before you were trying to fight against it. This is in our flesh, in our own power. The more you try and escape from sin, the more captive, the more entangled you become in it like a bug trying to fly out of a spider's web. 
So when you look at all of these together, and they're, they're, these are certain ways in which the scripture de- describes uh, the desperate situation that mankind is in. That we are condemned, that we are corrupted, that we are captive to sin and its control. There are other ways, but uh, for the sake of brevity, we're just going to touch on these three. Now, in in Christ's death, I want to talk about, so we talk about three C's that are a problem. Then I want to talk about in Christ's death and later in Christ's resurrection. um, We see that, that three R's occur as a result of Christ's work. Let's look at first at Colossians 1, 18 through 22. By the way, there are tons of places we could go to. In fact, er- earlier I thought I was looking in Colossians and I'm like, oh, I'm going to change uh, the section we're going to read uh, to different verses because this passage actually works in this area. And then I realized I was in Ephesians. Uh, and it was also talking about... Uh, the work of of Christ in, in regard to his death, and it's like it, this stuff is all over the place. So I'm I'm just kind of uh, cherry picking a few places. There are lots and lots of places we could go uh, for these passages. Uh, Colossians one. Uh, let's look at verses eighteen through twenty two. Um, speaking of Christ, and He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh his by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. In this passage, the first R that we need to mention is that we are reconciled. Uh, you, you notice it's the purpose of God in Jesus Christ through His cross is to reconcile all things in Christ and to Christ. That is, uh, we talk about when we went through the fall, one of the things that happens after Adam's, Adam and Eve's sin, there's, there's this distance, there's this disconnect, there's this fear with God. They run away, they hide, they want to try and get away from God. There's animosity. But here God comes and makes peace between God and man through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, We also see uh, in this passage it says uh, to reconcile uh, to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He talks about how we were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's now reconciled us. Uh, But one of the things is God reconciles us, not only God, but to one another. There used to be divisions that exist, Gentile and Jew divisions. There used to be nations opposed to one another. By the way, that's one of the things that's coming in Christ's kingdom. In the second garden, the tree of life reappears, and one of the things it mentions is that its leaves are for the healing of the nations. 
in Christ's death, we have not only the opportunity to be reconciled to God, but also to unite to one another in the body of Christ. So where, as previously, we were condemned under the just punishment and wrath of God because of the work of Christ on his on the cross through his death, we are reconciled to God and to one another. Now, in light of our former corruption, we are also renewed. God has to bring us a new nature and a new spirit. Turn with me. Ah, sorry. Second Corinthians. I also looked that up. I meant to change it. Second Corinthians five seventeen through eighteen. I'm so forgetful. I literally looked at First Corinthians and thought this isn't the verse. I need to change it, and then never did. First uh, Corinthians five. There is no, uh, uh, there is, sorry, there is no 1 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. So you've got to go to 2 Corinthians, uh, to look at verses 17 through 21. I, I still, I still need to change it because I just read it wrong again. <laughs> oh goodness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Look at the, 17 is really going to be where it focuses on this renewal, but the rest of it describes so beautifully what Christ does. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a a change that takes place, because in our flesh, in our old self uh, was corrupted we needed to be made new this is one of the things Christ accomplishes on the cross he makes us new he, he, he makes us a little it says a new creation uh, other ways it's described in, in, in scripture is a new birth I mean there, there's not much before you birth you know <laughs> most of what you do comes after your birth i don't know anybody that says well you know my main accomplishments were were before my my birth uh, you know it's the beginning point you know he's saying you need a new beginning you need a new creation you need a new start something's gone wrong and it needs to be restarted and here it says we have that we're no longer living in the corrupted Life under the control of sin, but we have been renewed in Christ. He has made us a new creation. He has given us a new birth. He has provided for ourselves what we cannot. He has provided for us what we cannot for ourselves. Uh, third R, God, God has reconciled us through the cross of Jesus Christ. He has renewed us through Christ's death and resurrection. Thirdly, He has redeemed us. 
uh, previously we were captivated. By the way, one of the things I thought of, I meant to mention it when we were talking about the corruption. There's some people who have issue with that, that humans are in, inherently corrupted or, or have issues. And I think of all the doctrines in the Bible, that's probably one of the ones that's most easily verified. You know, you, you just have to turn on the news. You've just got to look at little kids, even, uh, to, to figure out this tr- is true. Because, uh, you know, as a parent, what are your main goals? You've got to teach them how to do right. And you've got to teach them how to stop doing wicked things. Don't hurt them. Don't bite them. Don't do that. Don't lie. But my sister has uh, four boys and... The youngest one is super, super sweet, uh, but whenever our twins kind of get around him, uh, there, there are times when he wants, he wants the youngest attention back again. Uh, and what he started doing is, uh, my sister calls it telling tall tales, uh, to try and get attention, but what's he doing? He's lying! He'll, he'll bring over something his brother did with Legos and said, I did this! Or he, he he told me he was 45, uh, you know? He, he's trying to get attention, you know? And he doesn't care how, what means he uses to do it. Now, did anybody have to teach him how to lie? No. You, you don't have to train kids to do this. You don't have to teach them to do it. It's in their nature. They're automatic at it. They're good at it. <laughs> you got to work at it to get that out of them, to, to suppress that, to, re, to remove that. Uh, so the corruption is, is, is meant by being made new. And then we have this captivity uh, that God deals with in us. Let's look at Galatians 5.1 to look at how God receives this. So we used to be captive to sin, captive uh, to the desires that existed within it. And uh, Galatians 5.1, this is a beautiful verse. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Whereas previously we were captive to sin and under its control, Christ has set us free. By the way, uh, in, in particularly in the Second Corinthians five passage that we looked at, uh, one of the things that's being described in Christ's work is uh, a theological term that's used that's, that's very important. The theological term is called dual substitutionary atonement. Okay, dual substitutionary atonement. You know, words like that are why they get to charge you a lot for seminary, um, so that you can you can throw them around. The uh, dual substitutionary atonement is, is kind of a, simple, a complicated way to say a simple principle. And the simple principle is this: is in Christ's death, there's a, a transaction that occurs. And that transaction is that our sin is placed upon Christ. And that Christ's righteousness is placed upon us. This is for those who believe in Christ. Christ's 
Righteousness is given to us and our sinfulness is placed on Christ. So that when Jesus is on the cross and God the Father looked down upon him, he did not see the perfect Son of God. He saw your sin and he saw my sin and he saw all the sin of all those who believe in Christ and he poured out his just wrath upon Jesus on the cross so that the price has been paid by Christ. And now what happens when God looks at you and me, he doesn't see our sin or our unrighteousness because that was placed on Christ. He sees instead Christ's righteousness. One of the ways, one of the images that scripture uses to describe this is um, in terms of apparel. We used to have rotten, maggoty, falling apart, holes in it, clothed in our own sinfulness. What did God do? He took that away from us and provided us with a pure, a clean, a whole garment of righteousness that is provided by Jesus Christ. So those who who place their faith in Christ, their sins are forgiven because the penalty for those sins was paid by Christ. Now, uh, up to this point, all this is, is very important. All this is is, is uh, you know very great. But you know, one of the things you could say up to this point is, well, yeah, that's all well and good. But how do I know Christ accomplished that? He he might have claimed to do those things, but how do we know for sure? Uh, one of the things I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, we mentioned what is the penalty for sin? Death. Now, if all Jesus did was die, all that proves is that uh, he had some sort of sin placed on him. And if nothing else happens, well, that's not very impressive. Um, all my ancestors have died, um, except for the ones that are still living, but I suspect they're going to join them. I come from a long line of dyers. You know, and I, I have a feeling that's coming for my parents. I have a feeling it's coming for me. It's already come for all my grandparents. So dying's not that impressive of a thing to do. What, what confirms to us is that Jesus doesn't say, hey, I've conquered sin and death to things that are related. He proves it by rising from the dead. It's one thing to say you have power over sin and death. It's another thing to demonstrate that you have power over sin and death. He does this by rising from the dead. It demonstrates his power and ability to deliver what he promises. Because what does Christ say to us? He says, on the last day I'll rise you up, raise you up. I need to get my grammar right. This has been a long week. <laughs> somebody was talking about somebody mentioned something about last Sunday, and I thought, wait, that was a week ago. That feels like a month ago. Although it is September first, so I guess technically it was a month ago. Um, so you know, you you look at Christ and you see He demonstrates His power to do what He says He does through the resurrection, and that's the definitive proof. That Christ has the power over sin and death. By the way, when Christ raises from the dead, He raises from the dead never to die again. 
you know, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Guess what? He died again. Uh, in fact, they think they've uh, found Lazarus's tomb in Israel. Uh, there's a there's a, uh, there's an archaeological dig that found a family grave with three names on it from roughly around the first century, and it was Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were the names on that tomb. So that they don't know for a hundred percent, but there's a, a, a high likelihood that that may actually be the the tomb of Lazarus. So Lazarus raised from the dead, but guess what? Died again. If that wasn't his tomb, he's buried somewhere else. Jesus rises from the dead, guess what? Never to die again. Why? Because he has conquered death. Death has been defeated by Christ. He uses life to defeat death. His life is so powerful that now death has no power over him. Um, So, real quickly, uh, we're going to look at what does... Um, by the way, the resurrection of Christ is also necessary because it's according to prophecy. Scripture says, I will not let my Holy One see decay. Uh, guess what? Uh, in, in Acts, as Peter's talking about that, that prophecy not to let his anointed one see decay, Peter says, guess what? Uh, David, the person that prophecy is given to, is dead. We know where his tomb is. He, he's not doing so hot. The body is suffering decay. Jesus Christ raises from the dead, never to die again. He is in a resurrected body that has not and will not see decay. Um, the resurrection is according to the promises and prophecy of Scripture. Uh, three things that the resurrection of Christ does. Uh, there are more than these, but these are, are, are kind of my... Uh, my big bullet points. Uh, there are probably some, I hope they're not too many important ones. There are lots, well, there's lots of important ones. But these are big ones. Uh, first of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm giving you three C's, confirms his kingship. Talk about Christ being a king. That's what Messiah points to. That's what Christ points to. Uh, he is a king. Uh, by the way, what's he king of? Everything. Everything. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Everything. Yeah, that's a good, good, comprehensive kingship. King of kings, Lord of lords. There are no kings over him or, or, or lords over. He's uh, king of kings and, and Lord of lords. Uh, one of the things it talks about in Christ's kingship, what's coming down the line, what's coming in the future, is there is a time coming when all his enemies are going to be made as a footstool under his feet. All his enemies are going to be defeated and destroyed by the way what's one of the last ones that gets thrown away death death gets defeated here here in the cross he delivers uh, a death blow to death we're living during the death rattle of death now death eventually is going to be done away with Uh, but Christ is king. He's going to defeat all his enemies. The resurrection demonstrates uh, that he is a king, that he's the messianic king whose throne and whose kingdom and whose reign will not end. Uh, It also confirms his sonship. Some of the big, these are, by the way, some of the big, bold claims of Christ we talked about last week in relation to the person of Jesus Christ. Claiming to be the Messiah, that's a big, bold claim. Claiming to be the Son of God, that's a big, bold claim. 
What's he going to do to back it up? Well, raising, rising from the dead is pretty impressive. Um, thirdly, the resurrection confirms his saviorship. And I don't know if saviorship is a word, uh, but Cole gets to make up words all the time in the Sunday morning service, so I thought it was okay to do it here in, in the Sunday evening service as well. It confirms his kingship, his sonship, as well as his saviorship. Uh, the, and we mentioned this, by the way, you know, the, just, the penalty for sin is death. If he's taken on the penalty of death and overcome it, then a resurrection is a great way to prove it. He has, uh, and by the way, it also confirms his promises to us. Now, one of the passages we looked, like, looked through said, Christ is a first fruits of the dead. That is, he's one of the first ones that has risen from the dead. What does that mean? There's going to be more that are going to rise from the dead. Why? Because Christ has promised that to those who believe in Him. That they will rise from the dead. That they will be resurrected. That when they see Him, they will be like Him. That they will receive a resurrection body. How can we have confidence in this? Well, He's demonstrated He's got the ability to do it. He's resurrected, so because He's resurrected, we place our hope of resurrection in Him. Uh, a passage, uh, it, it might be a, a little bit of a stretch, but I knew I'd probably be uh, rushing at this point in the sermon. A, a passage that kind of covers all these, uh, look with me at 1 Peter 1, 3-4. First uh, Peter chapter one, beginning in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What gives us hope? What gives us assurance that Jesus saves us? It's the resurrection. It confirms His Saviorship. Now, uh, what does it say before that, even in the title? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does the resurrection prove? The Sonship of Jesus. He doesn't just claim to be the Son of God. He backs it up by doing things only the Son of God can do. Uh, what else does he do? It confirms his kingship. Uh, and what's the title given to Jesus here? Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord. That is a kingly and a divine title. Uh, Jesus Christ. What does Christ mean? It means, well, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the King. The resurrection of Christ points to the identity of Christ. The hope that we have is because of the mercy of God which is demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the way, as, as you think about the, the story of, the, of, of Christianity, don't forget the importance of the resurrection. In fact, we, one of the things I think of when I think about how important the resurrection is is uh, an evangelism class uh, I, I took when I was at Moody. 
And one of the uh, projects that you had for this evangelism class was to give an oral presentation of the gospel. So you'd have to go up in, in front of the in front of the teacher, and then you'd have to give a presentation of the gospel where it's just you talking. You don't have any notes or Bible or anything to look at. And so, you know, I was I was a book guy, uh, so I, I spent all my time in books. I'm like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go. So I had a friend who took it before me, and he got back, and he was looking kind of iffy. I was like, oh, what's going on? I said, how did your presentation go? He said, well, it went pretty good, but I left out one kind of important thing. I said, well, what did you leave out? He said, the resurrection. I thought, ooh, yeah. (laughs) That's a biggie. You know, I think a lot of times... uh, This is a little bit of a tangent. I don't know how much I should engage on it. Um, In Christianity, one of the things we ought to be careful of is the use of symbols. Because the symbols that you have repeatedly put in front of you shape your religious imagination. That's why I really don't like images of Christ. But one of the things that most people think is is pretty innocent, is pretty innocuous, is having crosses up all over the place. I don't think there's anything to be wrong, wrong with remembering the cross. It's central to our Christian faith. But one of the things that might happen is if the only image we have repeatedly put before us is, is the cross, we may only be thinking of the death of Christ and we may be forgetting His glorious resurrection. Christ is who He said He is. He is King. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He has reconciled a condemned humanity. He has renewed a corrupted humanity. And He has redeemed, He has rescued, He has ransomed, He has released a captive humanity. These things He offers to you and to me. If you are a believer through faith, you have received the benefit of Christ's work on your behalf. He has done what we cannot do to bring glory to Himself and to His Father so that we might be a people for His own possession who declare the excellencies of Him who brought us out of darkness and into His marvelous light.